From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihe Razazan. And I'm Khalil Bendib. This hour, we bring you an exclusive interview with Professor Samar Abboud of Arcadia University. We talk to him about his new and timely book titled Syria. Professor Abboud provides an in-depth analysis of Syria's descent into civil war. He unravels the complex and multi-layered causes of the current political and military stalemate, as well as the destructive role of international and regional actors and the rise of competing centers of power throughout the country. He says, as this situation persists, the continued fighting is reshaping Syria's borders and will have repercussions on the wider Middle East for decades to come. Professor Aboud spoke with Shahra Maramir about how the Assad regime has survived this far into the conflict. Uh, Samer, the Syrian regime has displayed a remarkable resilience since the uprising began in March of 2011. In your book, Syria, you write, uh, for the Ba'ath regime, the origins of its social base and the social forces that were incorporated into the Ba'ath's politics are central to understanding the rise and consolidation of the regime and the strategies it employed to remain in power. And you're referring to different periods since it came to power. Mm. Can you talk about these social forces that presumably backed the Ba'athi regime, the Syrian regime? They have been backing it and they're presently backing it. Yeah. One of the ways to understand, uh, at least one of the ways in which I understand the uprising, is as a consequence of the social transformations and the social changes that occurred, particularly in the last 20 years in Syria. Now, if we go back to the post-colonial period in the country, the post-mandate period, uh, that period was defined by instability. You're referring yeah. to French mandate that was yes, established sorry. in 1922, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, in the aftermath of the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. Okay. You had a French mandate that was established that essentially preserved the social and political dominance of a landed elite that was cultivated in the later period of, of the Ottoman era. And so the economic and political institutions of power in Syria during the mandate period were largely dominated by this landed elite. When the uh, French mandate collapsed and there was this period of, of instability inside of the country, that instability was really, you know, I'm reducing a complicated process here, but the instability was really brought about by different social groups attempting to wrestle power from this landed elite to take away or to chip away, if you will, at, at some of the, um, the institutions of the state that they controlled. And out of that conflict, out of that social conflict, emerges this instability. You have then in the late 1950s, Syria becomes part of the United Arab Republic. The dissolution of of all political parties happens afterwards. Uh, this is Abdel Nasser's, uh, one of the dictates uh, from Egypt, one of the conditions for the establishment of the United Arab Republic, uh, which is disbanded in 1961. And so there's further instability in the country. And, and that instability is really about the transition that was occurring socially inside of Syria. Uh, and that culminates in the seizure of power by the Ba'ath Party in 1963, and then through an internal coup by Hafez al-Assad uh, in 1970. And so the, 
the kind of contemporary Syrian state, the Ba'athist state, really begins to take form after 1970. And what we have in this period is an attempt by the Ba'ath Party to institutionalize the power or institutionalize the representation of those social forces that had struggled against the landed elite. So you see the state shift its focus in terms of its policy and how it directs development and how it directed uh, social policy and public investment. And there was really an agricultural focus, a peasant focus, a focus on supporting peasantry, on the redistribution of land. And a lot of this came at the expense, of course, of the landed elite or the, the economic elite. This is the landed elite that was essentially established in the middle of 19th century after the Tanzimat, the reforms Absolutely. within yes. the Ottoman Empire. And they became the political elite of the country too. Yeah. Once the French came and had established political institutions, they looked towards those economic elite to fulfill those roles. And so the political and the economic elite were essentially indistinguishable. And so there was conflict, social conflict, around the concentration of power in that elite. It gets slowly wrestled away after uh, decades of instability and, the, and then the rise to power of the Ba'ath Party. And what Hafez al-Assad does is through the creation of you know a really sophisticated security apparatus through the establishment of a large public sector which employed even today or even on the eve of the uprising anywhere between 20 and 25 percent of the total population and then investment in agriculture was really an attempt to counter the social, political, and economic weight of those landed elite. The problem is, of course, in Syria, I mean, among many other things, of course, this depended on the establishment of a repressive authoritarian system. It was also financially dependent on oil revenues and oil rents. It's a system that proved to be unsustainable. Now, the problem was uh, in Syria... You know, how do you basically have economic liberalization? How do you have economic reform? How do you overcome the, the dilemmas of authoritarian development while maintaining a politically repressive system? And this was the dilemma that the Syrian regime faced from the late 1980s onwards and for decades tried to balance this balance this dilemma. And really what ends up happening is you see the state retreat and you see the party retreat from its commitment to those social forces. So there's a narrative about the Syrian conflict that it was, you know, somehow a kind of consequence of climate change and government neglect. There's something to do with it, but it's too simplistic. Yes. The government did try to support agriculture. There was a drought. These things were true, but ultimately the consequence of the combination of a shift in how the government directed resources to agriculture, how the government changed property laws uh, in the agricultural areas. What we do know is that this led to a lot of change in the rural areas. It led to depopulation. It led to a shift where people started, you know, the economic opportunities in the rural areas were limited, so they started moving to the urban areas and for many reasons had to engage in informal activity, informal housing, uh, these sorts of things. So the relationship between between the rural areas and the state for many reasons, not just because of drought and neglect, but for many reasons, was slowly delinked. 
at the same time, the, the state retreated from its social welfare obligations or social welfare commitments. While maintaining a strong public sector, it you know, rolled back subsidies, it introduced private capital to the economy, into services. And all of these things really created a, a situation of gradual socioeconomic deterioration. And disaffection and among the population. Absolutely. Samer, what you're referring to happened in the late 80s and 90s. Yeah, the process began in a very kind of limited and gradual way at that point. Mm -hmm. But we really don't see it accelerate until the 2000s. So to just give you an example from my own experience, when I started going to Syria to conduct research in the early 2000s, the the price of food, whether at restaurants or in the market, was for me very cheap, not just as somebody coming from the outside, but many of my friends and my family inside of Syria, they never complained about the price of food. And they complained about many things, but the price of food was not not one of them. And and there was a sense that, remember, this is when Bashar al-Assad takes over in 2000, and there was a sense that maybe there might be a little bit of opening or at least a little breathing room. I don't think people who are realistic believed that there would be some sort of democratic transition, but they thought that maybe there would be a little bit of an opening and that the problems, the economic problems of the late 80s and 1990s would actually be reversed. I'm not entirely sure that everyone assumed that they would accelerate. And so contrast my experience in the early 2000s with the last time that I was in Syria in late 2010, where even I, as somebody coming from outside of Syria, believe that the cost of restaurants, the cost of eating out became really uh, unaffordable. It was very high. And many of my friends, many of my family started talking in this language of economic frustration and, and, and being really frustrated that they were on the margins of some of the quote-unquote reforms that were happening. Uh, they certainly weren't the beneficiaries of any wealth that was being created in the country. And, and what ended up happening is that there were opportunities for wealth creation. There were opportunities for people to make money in Syria in the 2000s. Lots of people made money in actuality, but the money was not distributed in any way that addressed a lot of the social problems that Syria was facing at the time. So whether it had to do with uh, unemployment or any sort of service provision or anything like that, the wealth that was being created was actually being concentrated. And as you suggested, and you're totally right about this, I mean, created this situation of dissatisfaction among a broad base of Syrian society. I certainly don't want to draw a direct line to say A equals B and but to say that more that this is the context, that if we look at Syria's post-colonial history, there have been these massive social transformations, I mean, very dramatic social transformations. And if we take it back even 100 years, we're talking about the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, the preservation of the Ottoman elite status, decades-long struggle to wrestle that status <laughs> away from them, the Ba'athist project of social engineering, which in its early phases was very radical and then moderated, if you will. They so, were influenced by socialist ideals. Absolutely. And Obviously, this, is, this was a statist approach to the economy. Yes. The inclusion of society in that, in that process was very cosmetic. It was, as you suggest, it was really, really top-down, led by the state, the party was was central to this, was central to decision-making. The public sector 
was not autonomous, of course, from the party. The public sector was the vehicle through which party policy would be realized and would be enacted throughout society. And how these different social groups, I mean, there's really 25%, 20, 25% of people in the public sector was an excellent way to not only create a middle class, but to cultivate a social basis that would be dependent on the preservation of the regime. Then there was mobilization of popular support, obviously, throughout different segments of the society. But this was not in order to empower them. It was rather to ensure the stability of the regime, wasn't it? Exactly. There wasn't any real attempt to foster a political identity or any political power among these social forces. What they actually tried to do and, and were quite successful at for decades was to link them politically and economically to the regime so that their their benefits, their political power, their economic benefits, whether through the distribution of welfare or jobs or land or anything like that, would be dependent on their relationship to the state. And so what we see in Syria is the suppression of any autonomous political forces. One of the things that always really struck me in Syria under the emergency law that for years people, it was actually illegal for people to gather in a mosque more than 15 minutes before or after prayer. They went to right. suppress any kind of organizing. They just really, yes. for anybody who's been to Syria, knows what it was like for many people who lived that. The problem reveals itself when the uprising happens because there are no organized, institutionalized political actors that can mobilize the the people who are protesting. These people who risk their lives, they risk their lives to just broadcast information. These people risk their lives at the very beginning to protest. This was, the word I use in the book is decentralized, but it's a bit more than that. It was disorganized isn't the right way to describe it but it was all it was all new in terms of in terms of the organization hmm. people were politicized of course people had consciousness people had well aware of their conditions that wasn't the issue it's not like they just woke up in 2011 and said hey you know we've been living in these conditions that certainly wasn't the case but the unions for example, were not autonomous from the regime, whether the peasants' union, the students' union, the trade unions, the chambers of commerce were not autonomous, the chambers of industry, for that matter. All of these different groups that may have provided support or at least like a, an organizational structure weren't autonomous from the regime. You have in your book that there were government NGOs, government non-governmental organizations. Yeah, yeah. So, being from Iran, I understand how that yeah. works, actually. We have a similar yeah. pattern there with some of the so-called NGOs. You write this so beautifully in your book. In terms of identifying the pillars of power for the regime of Hafez al-Assad, Bashar's father, what are these pillars of support and how relevant are they today in the case of present ruling bloc? That's a very good question. Before I begin to answer that, I should preface it by saying that the regime itself is really withered in every sense of the word. It was hollowed out by 2013. It was reduced to its security apparatus, which was the, the number one pillar, the violent apparatus. I mean, I wouldn't even call it a security apparatus because the only security it's provided is for the regime. The violent apparatus of the regime, the 13 intelligence agencies, the army, all of these different militias now that we have running around, that was the the key pillar that 
the violent capacity of the regime is what allowed it to create, uh, quote-unquote, stability. Stability for itself, of course. Uh, the other pillar was the, the public sector, as I mentioned earlier, you know, in terms of not just as a source of employment, but as the vehicle for creating policy, for enacting policy, and most importantly, for the distribution of government contracts. For many years in Syria, even until the eve of the uprising, one of the ways for people to make money was not through you know, what we would consider maybe in the West to be like a kind of traditional market. You know, you have an idea or you create something and you sell it on a market. But uh, rather people made money through the government procurement system. And in order to access the government procurement system, people had to be connected to many of these political and security networks, whether in the, you know, intelligence agencies or part of the political elite. The political elite, I mean, for all intents and purposes, was cultivated through the party. And, you know, the party was another pillar through which society could be mobilized, through which a political elite could be cultivated and which from which people could be drawn from. And Hafez al-Assad was incredibly lucky, maybe isn't the right word, but was incredibly adept at establishing those pillars and ensuring that they worked essentially in a kind of coherent way, that they that they worked together in order to preserve the fourth pillar, which is the state, state apparatus. And you uh, actually write that the incorporation of these social forces into the state did not occur organically or through popular acceptance and uh, adherence to Ba'athist ideology, but rather through some combination of corporatism and repression. Repression perhaps trumped corporatism at of course. many junctures, I can yeah. imagine. There was a kind of social contract, and there was a kind of a, a acceptance. We can't ignore, we can't forget that in the 1970s and, and into the 1980s, while the repressive uh, apparatus of the state was consolidating, there were also a lot of social gains. We can't ignore that. And I think that a lot of people wonder why would why would Syrians have waited so long to protest or why would anybody have have accepted uh, such a situation? And uh, part of the answer is is repression, of course. Um, but that repression also came with material benefits that discouraged people from uh, engaging in political activity against the regime. You argue that the Syrian regime's populist authoritarian model that represented an alliance between the army, peasants, workers, and Ba'ath Party, and the public sector, as you mentioned, had exhausted itself, as you mentioned earlier, by the 2000s, and gave away for a new model that instead reflected the economic interest of the urban classes, as opposed to peasants that you mentioned earlier, economic elites, and regime officials. The emphasis was on capital accumulation as opposed to redistribution, what you just mentioned, the gains that people were getting from this state. Yeah, I want to resist the temptation to draw these direct lines between what happened in the generation before, the decade before. But the reality is that by 2000, you had the commitment to accelerating the privatization of the 1990s. By 2005, you had the official declaration adopted by the Ba'ath Party uh, of something called the social market economy. Now, the social market economy was anything and everything. 
nobody really had a definition. It was this very vague kind of amorphous term. Nobody really uh, knew what it meant. And, and even the Abdullah Dardari, who was the architect of the social market economy, you know, would offer a very kind of simple explanations that, look, you know, we're going to introduce the market and also ensure that protections for society from the market. I mean, it's kind of an oxymoron, kind of a contradiction. And what they actually tried to do under the umbrella of this term was to redefine the role of the state, to redefine the state's uh, role in terms of policy, but also, most importantly, its fiscal role. So what supported the social welfare system from the 1970s onwards was the availability of, of financial resources to do so. Now, like by 2000, those sources are drying up. The state is not extracting money from society. You know that that the tax administration is very weak. Tax evasion is kind of rampant throughout the country. And so, you know, they have to generate money. They have to generate money. They have to generate jobs. And they simply, you know, have they don't know how to do that through the old mechanism. So they start introducing, reintroducing the private sector, the kind of bourgeois, the these landed elite, the next generation of the of the landed elite. They start kind of reintroducing them by opening up areas of the economy for them to engage in. So by mm. 2003, you have private banks, you have private insurance companies. And so according to the regime, what the role of the state would be is, okay, if prices get too high, we'll intervene and we'll subsidize. If something is happening, then we'll intervene. Otherwise, we're going to slowly subject the economy to the market. And the truth is that the marketization of the economy happened in a very gradual way, but it was this kind of slow introduction of neoliberal policies into Syria. Very slow, very gradual. But the problem was that the social aspect of the social market economy was totally overlooked. So I'll give you one example. In 1991, there was a very famous, if you will, of investment law, investment law number 10 that was passed in Syria. And this law was supposed to revolutionize the investment climate, was supposed to bring in uh, millions of dollars of private capital into the country with the intention of creating jobs for Syrians. From 1991 until the mid-2000s, the investments approved under that law only led to the creation of 36,000 jobs. In that same time, there were more than 2 million Syrians who entered the job market. So the policies were not in any meaningful way able to address the social changes that were happening in Syria, whether related to employment or wages or the, the stagnation of wages and the inability of wages to kind of keep up with the cost of living. So the idea was that you would introduce a market economy, you would create jobs, you would increase wages, you would create greater wealth in the economy, and all this neoliberal stuff that we hear everywhere in the world. We hear it in the West, we hear it in the Arab world, we hear it in Latin America, and we hear it everywhere, that if you just create the conditions for capital accumulation, if you create the conditions for wealth creation, then there will be natural... Trickling uh, down. Yeah, it will trickle down or it will just uh, magically distribute across society. And nobody from Syria to here has been able to provide, in my view, a reasonable explanation or a reasonable uh, framework for understanding how that actually happens. And in Syria, in a context where the security of the regime is paramount, 
and right under the security of the regime in terms of importance for the regime is the, the creation of wealth for people who are connected to the regime. And do you know way down the list were these concerns about the distribution of social welfare and social benefits. So what you have in the 2000s is an acceleration of the negative socioeconomic patterns of the 1990s. So wages stagnate, the public sector stops employing people. So that mechanism of uh, middle class creation, that mechanism of wealth distribution basically stops. You have a demographic boom in the country. So you have more and more people entering the the job market, and they need more services. So these are the kind of general patterns in the abstract that were happening in Syria. And the, the regime's answer was basically to marketize the economy, that mm. magically wealth would distribute across these different social groups, that people who had lost their jobs or who had moved to the cities would miraculously be retrained and find other jobs. And what we see is that the, the private sector simply wasn't capable of doing that because it was operating in this very repressive context, both politically and economically. I believe 96, 97 percent of Syrian enterprises on the eve of the uprising uh, had less than 12 employees. Hmm. When the enterprise structure of the private sector is such, creating jobs is is very difficult. And that is not a comment in, at all on the on the ability of the Syrian people or of Syrian business people. It's it's a comment on the the repressive environment in which they operated sure. that made enterprise expansion suspect for the regime that made it very difficult. And we know that enterprise expansion, wealth creation was really connected to a business person's ability to access uh, the political elite and the security elite to ensure that they would have access to these some of these opportunities. So all this transformation that you just mentioned placed extreme political and social pressure on the Syrian populace and at that point, in 2011, you also have the uprisings in the, in the Middle East and North Africa. And there was no political outlet to express discontent or mobilize inside Syria. Yep. So there comes the protests against the Assad regime and against the Syrian regime. In your book titled Syria, you write, from the very beginning of the uprising, the historical suppression of the political opposition would shape the limits and possibilities of the protesters and force them to create new structures from which to organize and mobilize against the regime. To me, given such constraints, it's remarkable that how a series of protests would actually morph, as you say, morph into a movement yeah. with a national character. Can yeah. you talk about this and tell us more about the role played by such entities as local coordination committees and civil society groups? Absolutely. So it is, uh, you used a wonderful word, uh, remarkable, to describe the process. You know, unlike in Egypt or in Tunisia, where you had the presence of uh, political parties or unions or other groups that had some autonomy from the regime, that didn't exist in Syria. And so when the protests began, the political opposition, the way we understood the political opposition was as a political opposition in exile. And that opposition, you know, we uh, simplified it. There was the Brotherhood and they were the strongest. And then there were, you know, the liberals and the nationalists and there were the remnants of the old regime and uh, things of that. And I think that what 
the best way to describe the situation prior to the uprising is that the regime had opponents to deal with, not an opposition. So you had opponents inside of the country, but because of the repression, they weren't really able to organize. They couldn't get together. So you never really had a sense of what any, maybe a political ideology or a political current or any any movement, what kind of support that they would get within society. Now, this is a kind of limitation, of course, but it, it also served as a possibility because the people who were protesting at the very beginning, many of them did not have political connections to the political opponents. What I mean by that is that they weren't driven or motivated by them. They were driven and motivated by their very own real specific material and political concerns that they were responding to. That's not to say that there was a kind of singular social base of the uprising. There were everything from young uneducated people, young educated people, urban, rural. You had different tribal groups that were engaging in protests. You had kind of cross-sectarian protests. All that's to say that the, the groups that engage in the protests didn't really have connections to the opposition in exile or the opponents in exile or inside of Syria. And so that provided a kind of possibility, provided the possibility for the creation of alternatives uh, or the creation of entirely new structures. The problem is that these structures, because of the context in which they arose, a context of a revolution, an uprising, were by definition very weak. And so the local coordination councils, or the local coordination committee, sorry, when they were formed, they were initially formed simply as media clearinghouses. They were, of course, very political. But as they popped up around the country, it was in a kind of very decentralized way. So they they popped up around the country with the purpose of collecting and disseminating information about the protests. And then this slowly morphed into organizing and politicizing the protests, giving them political meaning, and then creating some sort of coherency among the protests. And so did that have a national character? Yes, in the sense that it was occurring throughout different parts of the country, but it, did it have a national character in the sense of being a centralized movement that had a centralized leadership that was directing, organizing, mobilizing, and speaking for? No, that wasn't the case. And that was largely because these activists and these people who were engaging in these protests were very localized, that their, of course, their interests and their goals were national, their demands, their for political rights, for uh, social rights, for economic rights, for the lifting of emergency law. Those were, of course, very national demands and apply to all Syrians. The reason that I say that it was localized is that the networks that they relied on to sustain the movements, to sustain the protests, were their local social networks. So they didn't really have a lot of support from other councils, other parts of the country, because you didn't have a kind of centralized leadership. And that was reflected in the character of those committees. So they were very localized in their social composition, in their interests, and in their activities. The difficulty of organization, as you mentioned, was compounded by the withdrawal of regime forces from certain areas of the country and the need to maintain and provide food and services to the local populations who had supported their political efforts. Indeed, the withdrawal of regime security forces often, as you write, the paralysis of state institutions in these areas that no longer function. 
And as you correctly point out, it does further exacerbate the pressures placed on the protesters. Talk about this important development and how, in order to fill this void, local coordination committees and other civil society groups had to do relief work and how they morph into administrator actors, as you call them. This is really a kind of a very quick thing that happens is that many of these people that are running the the LCCs or are part of them, they start out as these kind of media activists, these political activists, and then basically the state withdraws from these areas. And it happened very gradually. Of course, it didn't happen in the larger uh, population centers. It happened in, in smaller areas first. And so what you had was a disruption of state services, withdrawal of the state. And, you know, in its extreme form, it's like when the courts stop working, when the electricity stops coming and, and things like this. And that happened much later. But but in the early stages of the conflict, when the state withdrew, what happened is that people who had been protesting or people in these places turned to the LCCs and said, okay, now what? I mean, we, we need food, we need this, we need that. And so the LCCs transitioned very quickly from being media and political activists to being administrators, to being groups organized for a responsible story for uh, governance, for governance of those areas that were now void of the state. And what we see here is this very quick attempt to organize society along these lines. And so you have the creation of governance councils, you have the creation of local councils, you have people bringing together uh, teachers to make sure that schools still function, people bringing together doctors to make sure that hospitals still function, judges, things of that nature. And what happened is immediately as the state started to withdraw, you could do that because there wasn't a lot of displacement happening at the time. There was still some wealth. The areas of the country were not physically separated from each other. So you could still move people, move goods, move things from one part of the country to another. Uh, even when there were regime blockades or regime sieges, uh, you could still move goods in and out of places. And so it was possible um, uh, to make that transition to a governance and administrative role because they could still provide um, services, uh, they could still access goods. The problem was, of course, that uh, there was a lot of difficulty in organizing a kind of governance system out of nothing. Uh, yes, you had elections. I know these were very celebrated in the West that there were these elections, but everything was happening from scratch. Nobody, nobody really had a blueprint for this. And so it looked very different throughout the country. So, for example, maybe in the south, you would have a local council that was composed mainly of tribal activists, whereas in the uh, you know, in another part of the country, you might have a council that was mostly young people, people who had uh, maybe come from the middle classes and uh, had participated in the protests. So there wasn't a kind of social consistency to the councils. They had to very quickly, very quickly become these administrators of these areas. And over time, after a few months, after a year, you see the the weakness, if you will, of the 
of their institutional structures collapse and they can no longer provide for the services. And I think that this corresponds to and parallels uh, the rise of the armed groups in those areas. It is not unusual under insurrectionary movements to have these spontaneous organs of popular power yep. formed. And it seems like Syria was no exception to that. And you're right, perhaps the largest challenge facing Syrian civil society is in being taken seriously as a political actor in the uprising. And you explained the militarization of the uprising has deflected attention away from civil initiatives and the resiliency of nonviolence in Syria. You add the absence of civil society groups from any negotiations, for example, suggests that they're irrelevant to the larger political answers that will decide the evolution of the Syrian crisis. And here you're obviously referring to all these formal politics and negotiations. Mm. One of the unfortunate consequences of this obsession and intoxication with ISIS now in the West is that we've completely lost sight of the fact that this conflict was not between ISIS and the regime from the beginning. ISIS didn't even exist. Existed in, in a rump form in, in Iraq and then morphed, of course, as the Syrian conflict emerged. But what we've done and the ways in which we have viewed and the ways in which we insist on understanding the Syrian conflict as this very simplistic fight between the regime and the rebels and of which there is Nusra and there's ISIS and maybe a few other from the FSA. What we do when we insist on seeing the conflict this way is that we completely ignore not only the ways in which Syrian society has remained resilient, has remained strong uh, in the face of bombardment and violence and displacement, but precisely the, the people as individuals and the people as collectives that have made that possible, that have sustained people, that have provided everything from schooling to children, when possible, doctors. I mean, you know, you hear these stories about doctors leaving. There are very few doctors left in Aleppo, but then you also hear stories about doctors returning and coming and living in the eastern parts of Damascus that are under uh, siege and risking their own lives. And, and that, to me, is the future of Syria. Those are the people whose interests are entirely, entirely ignored uh, when we a, think about the conflict and when we decide to define the conflict in particular ways, and B, when we also think about what kinds of solutions to the conflict are possible. We think in these very crude geopolitical terms as if the whole world is a game of risk and you just move people here and move people here and then everything will fall into place. And this ignores the way in which Syrians have tried to keep themselves and their country and their areas and their families and their neighborhoods and their communities uh, intact over the last uh, four plus years. So the regime had a twofold response to the protests. Perhaps you can talk about that. And in your view, the regime's response seems to indicate a conflict within the inner circle of the regime, mm. um, something that may even exist today. Yeah, there certainly was, I think, debate within the regime circles in the very beginning uh, about how to respond. I mean, I think the security, it was pretty obvious what the security apparatus intended to do, and that was to greet uh, the protests and to address the protests through violence. I think there was a sense because of the timing that maybe in the Egyptian case, in the Tunisian case, that what was needed was kind of more violence to address the protesters. And I think that that's what we see is clearly the response. I mean, there's no attempt from the security forces to even 
allow protests, to appease the protesters in any way. And right away from the beginning, you hear this narrative of, oh, they were shooting at us, they were shooting, and uh, so we're, you know, we're defending ourselves as if the security forces were the victims. That said, there was an attempt, a very cosmetic attempt by the regime to placate the protesters through political measures. So like the lifting of emergency law, the promise to extend citizenship to stateless Kurds, the promise of elections, the there was a sacking of a, of a governor, the removal of, I believe, one of the police officers in the South, these kinds of measures, you know, the big one, of course, being the removal of emergency law, but, you know, it had no effect, none whatsoever on the things that were important to people, which is, you know, not being shot at, not being imprisoned, things like that. And I think that that's why the protests continued. The protests accelerated after many of these reforms, even in the face of elections, because people knew the regime had been promising these things for many years. The regime had engaged in cosmetic reforms for many years, and it hadn't led to anything substantial. And people weren't going to be fooled yet again. And I think that the protests had a momentum at that time that then made any voices within the regime that may have wanted to engage in dialogue or any negotiation or even, God forbid, some sort of substantive political reform, I think it just eventually shrunk and, and shriveled out. And, and now the dominant strategy, of course, is the repressive strategy. Sam, in your book, you name two factors that explain the regime's resiliency during the course of the conflict in Syria. The first is the deficiencies and weaknesses of the opposition, as you mentioned, and the second is what you call authoritarian adaptability. Can you elaborate? The idea of authoritarian adaptability is an idea that the regime has basically learned from what happened not only within Syria, uh, but within other Arab countries during the uprisings, and adapted to those conditions. So in a context where the regime's army, for example, was no longer able to fight uh, rebel groups or was no longer able to hold territory or to push back against rebel groups that were controlling key trade routes or key corridors, what they would do is increasingly rely on Hezbollah, for example. Hezbollah, I mean, after 2013, really accelerated their involvement in Syria in defense of the regime, of course, and in all likelihood, if Hezbollah had not entered and had not committed so much to the Syrian regime, we're probably looking at a very different conflict. Also, the cultivation of the National Defense Forces, which is the Syrian-based militia, as a kind of pro-regime militia. The idea is that in the face of military defeats in the face of territorial contraction, what the regime did was rely on Hezbollah, on the NDF, on regional militias to come in and support its military efforts. In the same way, they had shifted much of their economic focus, if you will, so an increasing reliance on Russia, an increasing reliance on Iran, an increasing reliance on business people who are outside of the formal sanctions regime in order to bring goods into the country. So the kind of cultivation of a conflict elite, of an elite that has gained wealth and gained political power simply because they're not under sanction and the regime needed them in order to make 
payments in the global system in order to bring in uh, goods, food, things of that nature. Essentially, the idea of authoritarian adaptability refers to the ways in which the regime shifted its economic modes of governance, its security methods, its military methods, and the way that it decided to respond to the conflict and what was happening in Syria. And I think that what made this possible, as you suggest, is the, the other factor, which is basically the armed groups and the political opposition inside of Syria were strong enough to place pressure on the regime. They were certainly strong enough to place uh, military pressure and to force regime contraction, but they weren't strong enough to overthrow the regime, you know, create a kind of a collapse. And part of that reason is that there has never been anything resembling a unification of the armed groups or the political opposition. Quite the opposite. I mean, fragmentation has defined the armed groups to the point where they spend more time fighting each other than they do the regime. The political opposition was really never able to do anything, anything of significance in terms of forcing the regime to make any political concessions or uh, forcing the regime to take them even seriously. And even at that, if we look at the Friends of Syria group, if we look at all of these international gatherings that were supposed to legitimize the political opposition, they did nothing but undermine them. And all these demands that the opposition made, whether for a no-fly zone or Western intervention or arming the rebels, all of these demands that became core political demands of the opposition uh, were ignored and are still to this day ignored by the West. So the, the regime knew that the political opposition was ineffectual. Uh, the armed groups were fighting each other and a slight adaptation or not a slight, even a kind of big adaptation in the um, in the security response, in its economic response to the conflict basically explained, uh, I mean, at least for me, explains the the persistence of the regime in this very kind of rump state as we approach the five-year anniversary of the conflict. We'll talk about the destructive role played by exogenous forces and regional actors in the conflict in Syria. But since you mentioned Lebanese Hezbollah fighters and commanders of Iranian regime's revolutionary guards and the militias recruited and paid by the Iranian regime mm. and how they have helped the Syrian regime and its survival. You write Iran's military involvement in Syria is extensive, so much so that it's believed that Iranian officials are making key battlefield decisions in place of Syrian officials. And in fact, there was a statement just about a month ago by uh, Iran's deputy foreign minister in charge of Middle East and North Africa, saying that if it hadn't been for Iranian intervention, the Syrian regime would have collapsed three years ago. Mm. Uh, do you really think the Syrian regime could have survived without the Iranian regime's military and financial assistance? Absolutely not. There's no way that this regime would have survived without either. I mean, just the economic assistance, providing the regime with hundreds of millions of dollars to pay salaries, to reintroduce subsidies, to prevent hyperinflation. I mean, you've had something along the lines of hyperinflation and a total devaluation of the Syrian pound. Nevertheless, Iranian support mitigated the negative effects of that. There's no possible way economically that this regime would have, would have survived without Iranian support. And militarily, I mean, Hezbollah's role in preserving this regime can't be ignored at all. I mean, Hezbollah is the reason that the regime is still around. 
this is a reality. Before Hezbollah entered and kind of came all in into the conflict, the pattern was of contraction. The pattern was of the regime losing territory. And you had the kind of morale of the army and the ability of the army to even fight was completely was completely gone. And the trend was against the regime. And then, of course, Hezbollah's intervention has reversed that. Look at what's happened in Homs, uh, what's happening in the border areas, and you have a slow retreat of the armed groups. And in their place, Hezbollah is coming in and taking over. In addition to that, the truces, for example, the ones that were initially negotiated in Homs, the ones that were negotiated in Halab and Aleppo, and even the one that was negotiated with the army of conquest in the Idlib area, these are all negotiated by Iranian officials. I have a colleague, a friend, who is privy to what was going on in these negotiations, and, and they told me very plainly that there were no Syrians in there. The one that happened in Idlib, this is not uh, my friend telling me this, but it's reported that basically it was negotiated by uh, Iranian officials and Turkish officials. So even those attempts, those local attempts, the ceasefires, were out of the regime's hands and were controlled by the Iranians. You know, battlefield decisions, military decisions, these things, we know that for the most part, where there are Iranian officials, where there are Hezbollah officials, they are often commanding, not necessarily working side by side, but even commanding uh, many of the Syrian forces, whether the NDF or the regular army or even the, the militias that are coming from other, other parts of the region. And so there's no way that the regime would have even survived in any kind of coherent or substantive way. And so, you know, with all that said, it was a bit odd this week that we saw these reports that Iran was somehow withdrawing from Syria or something of that nature. It's a bit silly that given four plus years of such extensive involvement and such a commitment to the preservation of the regime that all of a sudden they would decide to uh, withdraw because of some battlefield losses. As you mentioned, one of the key commanders of Iran's regime's Revolutionary Guards was killed just recently. Yep. That was a big piece of news in Iranian media. As you said, the Iranian regime is also bankrolling Afghan and Iraqi militias yep. to come and fight in Syria. We'll come and talk about other regional players later. Let's get into uh, this issue of armed opposition in Syria. I should say that in your book titled Syria, you bring up an important point, which is, and I quote you, it has become common in most analyses of the Syrian conflict to draw a clear division between the period of popular nonviolent mobilization and that of militarization. And you add, this is a false periodization of the conflict as both nonviolent mobilization and armed insurrection or regime violence have been present since the outset. I think that especially from our vantage point right now, we want to imagine this conflict or view this conflict as something along the lines of a civil war where you have the regime fighting ISIS and Nusra and, and other armed groups. And when we do that, we ignore the basis of the uprising. For those who make that argument, who have a sense of some history, the common narrative is that, oh, it was a nonviolent uprising that became militarized and 
and in that narrative, in that argument, the nonviolent part is rendered irrelevant or is rendered as a kind of transition point. And I think that this feeds into the regime's narrative that it's been a violent conflict from the beginning. It also forces us to think of the political trajectory and the political solution to the conflict in a way that is just about the armed groups, that is just as if some sort of this is just about bringing together the, some of these groups and taking their arms away and, and things of that nature. And what it does is it robs the uprising of its original intent. It distorts how we see the conflict, how we see the role of different social actors inside of Syria, how we see the role also of the international community, because the international community is culpable, is implicated in the militarization of the conflict. So are the regional actors. I mean, all of them are, because we can't ignore that the military solution was placed as, was deemed the this was how the conflict was going to be solved. It was going to be solved through military means. And in doing so, that suppressed and marginalized all the other nonviolent attempts to organize society, to end the conflict, to put forth a new vision for a Syrian state and new vision for Syrian politics and new vision for Syrian identity. That's very problematic because that still exists. I think that we would be naive to think that this is somehow going to end with the triumph of a revolution and the imposition of some sort of democratic regime or anything like that. I mean, I think that's naive and I think it's a bit silly. But we can't deny that alongside of the armed groups fighting in Syria, there is still a tremendous momentum and a tremendous desire to reshape and re-engineer society, to re-engineer uh, Syria, if you will, or to reimagine Syria as a different place, as a place that is not uh, an authoritarian state, that is not a proxy state, and that is not a failed state, to use the popular terminology here in the West. Hmm. You have a very interesting analysis of uh, these armed groups, and you write there are three main analytical tools in particular that can help us understand the proliferation and diffusion of violence. The stalemate and the continuity of conflict, the civilization of war, the multiplicity of violence, and mm. the political economy of war. Can you talk about them uh, in the Syrian context briefly? One of the things I've tried to understand is to ask is, you know, why is this violence proliferating? Why is the violence occurring? And the first thing that I tried to look at is what is the structure of violence? What is the nature of violence? And the first thing that really stands out is that over time, there was what I call a civilianization of violence. And what I mean by that is that civilians become combatants that most of the people that are fighting within Syria today are not people who are trained soldiers. They're not people who have received any military training. They're largely uh, civilians who have taken up arms and have joined different armed groups throughout the country, whether it's in the loyalist areas or the regime areas, whatever we want to call them, or in the areas that are run by the armed groups. And what has essentially happened is that people in different neighborhoods would take up arms and they would form what I call security units. Uh, these are groups of small people, four, five, six, seven, eight, who would take over security for a neighborhood. And over time, these small units morphed into brigades. And again, these are mostly civilians who are participating in this violence. These are people who are bakers. They had jobs. They did this. You know, these are people who may have 
taken up arms for security reasons, but also for economic reasons because they needed to access resources, they needed to make money, and they did so through kidnapping or through extortion or through taxing or through looting or things of that nature. And so they took up arms, not necessarily in the name of, of the revolution or in the name of overthrowing the regime, but uh, for very basic security instincts, both physical security and economic security. And this is what explains for me the first thing, which is the civilianization of violence. And then as these groups form, uh, they eventually form brigades. And we see this, of course, throughout the country. And these brigades would be a few dozen or a few hundred people. And there would be a kind of more of a hierarchy of command. But because the fighters within those brigades were civilians and there wasn't a lot of loyalty and these brigades weren't necessarily formed around ideology, uh, which is something we assume here in the West, that these are kind of ideologically consistent groups or that they attract people because of ideology. That's not the case. What we see happening is a lot of these civilians who've transitioned into being combatants start shifting allegiances, you know, going from one brigade to another and then and another and then maybe leaving and coming back. And there's no consistency or coherency to the structure of the armed groups. And there's no ideological consistency. They're fighting for many reasons. And so this to me has created what I call in the book the kind of networks of violence. The basic structure of violence for me is is the fighting unit as a small unit, the brigade as a much bigger unit, and then the fronts that are made up of brigades. And within those three different units, you see a lot of change, not necessarily in the leadership. The leadership stays the same, I think, but in the composition of the fighters. And I think that because so many of these people are engaging in violence for economic reasons. One of the main drivers of the war is, of course, the political economy of conflict. Surely, of course, people are fighting for political reasons, but they're also fighting for economic reasons. There's a lot of money to be made, whether in the, the arms trade, whether in looting, whether in taxation of a population. A lot of people are making money off of this conflict and through this conflict in very particular ways. People are making money because of the presence of conflict. And so to some degree, they have a stake in the continuity of conflict. That doesn't mean that I think everybody wants there to be conflict and violence and, and this kind of awful humanitarian crisis. But under these kind of violent conditions, people need to find ways in, in order to ensure their security and their survival, and they increasingly turn to violence and the war economy to satisfy those needs. And now it's, it has this kind of momentum of its own. And so I think it's a very important thing that we need to consider when talking about the future trajectory of the conflict. Since you were talking about the political economy of war, I thought it was fascinating that you mentioned in your book about these trades between Daesh, you know, the Islamic State, yep. and the Syrian regime, for instance, selling electricity for gas, you know, and <laughs> trading. Can you briefly talk about that, yeah. some of these deals? Yeah, it's one of those weird consequences of conflict that supposed adversaries are actually quite friendly when it comes to economics. What has basically happened in a lot of areas, the regime will control the ability, for example, to provide electricity or water to certain areas. 
Dash does control some oil fields, but doesn't control refining capacity. They don't actually, from what I gather, uh, aren't really engaging in any refinery work of the oil. And so, you know, in exchange for providing electricity or providing water, which the regime can control, they might barter that for oil, for gas, which, you know, the regime needs. It needs to provide that in those areas. We also have to, if we look at a map of Syria and its kind of territorial fragmentation, when we think of the control of armed groups, those frontiers, those lines are points of taxation. And so to move goods, to move people even from one part to another, to get goods from Turkey, from Jordan, from Lebanon, from Iraq, to different parts of the country requires some agreement about the movement of goods. And you see this in Aleppo too. In Aleppo, it's known that there's crossover across the lines of goods of people. And all of that is made possible through these deals between the armed groups or simply through paying. And so when there's money to be made, I think that they're, they're more than willing to put aside their differences in order to make money. As you call it, this is a pattern of cooperation and conflict among yeah. these groups. So Samer, in your book titled Syria, you write that regime violence, much like the violence of the rebel groups, is privatized, decentralized, and increasingly civilianized. Basically, you talk about some of these groups, such as the militia, such as Shabiha, the other ones that were formed later on, National Defense Forces. The process of armed group formation or the process of that formation in the quote-unquote rebels, the groups fighting the regime, was very similar to what happened in the regime areas. There were people that would get together, that would pick up guns. I mean, the Shabiha were these people that were engaging in violence against protesters and then, of course, in looting and, you know, things they were profiteering from the conflict. What happens over time is that these groups started to grow in the same way that the groups on the the rebel side began to grow and slowly became an alternative source of authority. They paralleled the regime's authority in, in many areas. And so the regime really was faced with this dilemma. You have these groups that are engaging in violence against the protesters, against the regime's opponents, armed and unarmed, and that is, of course, so helping the regime and supporting the regime, but they're not under the control or leadership of the regime. And so from here, we have the creation of the National Defense Forces, which is an attempt to institutionalize what were essentially Syrian civilians, uh, and this cut across sectarian lines, uh, to institutionalize the ways in which Syrian civilians were engaging in violence in the name and interests of the regime. So these people got uniforms, they got ID cards and things, but they weren't given formal training. They weren't soldiers. They were Syrian civilians who had taken up arms in the context of the conflict and were all of a sudden institutionalized because the regime wanted to control them. We know that many of the leaders within the National Defense Forces were trained and have very strong connections to the Iranian Revolutionary Guards, to the Iranian regime. We know this, and recently, within the last two weeks, I was hearing from Syria that there has been a Russian demand to disband the National Defense Forces. And the reason I bring this up and the reason why I think this is significant and related to the question is that 
what that proposal would do is take 90,000 Syrian civilians who have arms and who have now been engaging in violence for four years, three years, two years, whatever it is, when these people joined, and basically delink them from the state. They have no interest other than in their own preservation at this point. They have no interest in demobilizing, I believe. They have no interest in giving up the economic opportunities that they have from the war. I mean, from what I've heard that in the coastal areas, uh, many of the coastal areas, the army is totally absent, that the checkpoints, that uh, the ports are very much controlled by the NDF. So what this means is that you have these Syrian civilians who've taken up arms, who have now developed an interest in the persistence of conflict. And you mentioned this, that this National Defense Force, NDF elite, are emerging as warlords with their own agendas and interests that may not coincide with those of the Assad regime in the future. And this is why the idea that Assad can somehow negotiate a political solution and transmit that to the ground, transmit that to the battlefield is silly because I don't believe that they're fully under the control of the regime. I mean, they act autonomously. Every once in a while, you hear stories, you hear of the murder of key NDF officials. And a lot of this is linked to political conflicts they're having with people in the army, with officers in the army, or with people within the regime circles, even most recently in the in the northwest of the country, along the kind of coastal areas, there's actually uh, the murder of a Syrian army official by one of the NDF officials. So there's a tension and there's conflict between them. We wrongly assume that there's coherency there, that there's a regime and they control the army and they control the intelligence and they control the NDF and they control the militias. That's not true problematic to assume that. What we're actually talking about is a large group of Syrians who have been fighting in the name and the interests of the regime, who, of course, they have an interest in the preservation of the regime, but they have developed interests independent of the regime. And those interests are directly tethered and directly linked to the persistence of conflict. So they're mainly economic interests. We know that the areas they control, like through the checkpoints, through looting, I mean, these are marauders and mercenaries. They're pirates. They're running around and they're they're looting these areas. They're taxing populations. And as long as the conflict persists in its form in this way and they're able to extract from the population, what interest do they possibly have in ending it? So even in the... In the most bizarre scenario where you have, say, Bashar al-Assad wakes up tomorrow and, and there is a negotiation, the question of whether that negotiation can lead to anything, A, and B, whether Bashar al-Assad or the regime, whatever it has been reduced to now, can actually make those groups stop fighting and stop engaging in violence. I mean, I think we know the answer. I think that the answer is they can't. And so this isn't a very positive uh, development. And I think it's something that the regime will have to negotiate at some point. And maybe it's the uh, Russians and the Iranians negotiating this. I don't know. Maybe it's forced disbandment. Maybe it's integration into the army. Who knows? It's a source of authority. It's a source of power that has to be negotiated uh, and is not going away because it's been cultivated and it's grown. These national defense forces or the militia that you just mentioned, you mentioned they're 
ostensibly trained by the Iranian Revolutionary Guards. Yes. It seems like they may be modeling it after Iranian Basij. That yeah. may be the model they're following. Let's talk about international actors. And I think you devote a whole uh, body of literature to this in your book. The role of international actors, you write, in militarily, financially, and politically backing their respective allies in Syria is perhaps the single largest factor explaining the continuity of the conflict, fragmentation of political and military forces, the failure of reconciliation efforts, and the existing stalemate that is slowly fragmenting the country. Thank you for identifying that that particular passage, because it is a really important passage. I want to preface my response to the question by saying that I don't want to rob Syrians of both agency and responsibility for what's happening <laughs> inside of Syria. But that specific quote is to say that given the reliance of armed groups, given the reliance of the political groups, given the reliance of the regime on outside forces, I talked about this earlier for the military efforts, given the reliance for economic efforts, given the reliance for political support, whether it's Russia at the United Nations, whether it's Iran giving money, whether it's any of those things. Given that reliance, the decisions about what happens in Syria are increasingly outside of the hands of Syrians. And it means that those groups who exercise a degree of influence inside of Syria have the ability to torpedo any positive measures, uh, number one. Number two, have an ability to direct the conflict in particular ways. And so even countries that we think are allies, that we treat as allies, like Turkey, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, have actually been been really fighting out the Syrian conflict based on the support of different armed groups. Why are the armed groups fragmented? Yes, these are questions of ideology. Yes, these are questions of political strategy. But they're also questions of who are their patrons, who is behind them, who is encouraging them to adopt certain political positions versus others. The reason that the groups have that much influence on them is that the groups haven't been able to develop a kind of material or political autonomy from their foreign patrons. They're beholden to them. And these patrons, and this is where the international factor I think is very important, these patrons don't have coherent interests. Like Saudi Arabia, for me, for example, I can't, if I spent the rest of my life trying to think of this, I can't distill any interest, any interest that they have in Syria, any specific interest. This or that or A or B, I don't know. I'm really at this point where I believe that what Saudi Arabia wants is just to foster chaos in Syria, chaos, instability. There's no coherency to anything that's going on. Why, for example, do they foster fragmentation of the opposition groups and then all of a sudden bring them into Saudi Arabia and say, okay, get along? It doesn't make sense. You actually say this about Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and Turkey, that they facilitated the inflow of light weapons that yeah. were dispersed to multiple armed groups. Yep. And you say this, preventing the concentration of weapons in any particular group. And yeah, you're saying this is actually a strategy that creates more fragmentation. Yep. What they've done is that they have seen all efforts by the other parties, any efforts by those groups, as a threat. They've seen it as, as threatening. So what they've tried to do is balance the power. If Qatar was seeing that Saudi Arabia was supporting one faction of the opposition, then Qatar would try to empower another faction of the opposition. And this was what fueled the fragmentation of the opposition. Even if they tried to bring them together, it's debatable whether 
whether they could really have agreed on a coherent program, but nonetheless. So there was a regional rivalry between these groups, Turkey, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and all the other states. And what this did was create a situation where all of these groups, whether the Saudi-sponsored ones, whether the Qatari ones, whether the, the ones supported by the Turkish intelligence, all of these groups became strong enough to fight each other and to fight the regime, but not strong enough to swallow up the other groups. Because Saudi Arabia could always provide a counterweight. Qatar could always provide a counterweight. Turkey could always provide a counterweight. And so those three key states that were so essential to providing light weapons, to providing money, to providing support, that were so essential for that, actually did so in ways that completely prevented uh, any consolidation of the resources of the armed opposition or of the political interest or the political program of the uh, external opposition. You're basically right in your book, Syria. Increasingly, discourse in Western states, you're referring to Western Europe and United States and Canada, I suppose, is presenting the problem as one of the regime or ISIS, Daesh. Framing of the conflict, you're saying that has given the Syrian regime allies within Western states who believe that the regime should be supported in order to eliminate the Islamic State threat. The trajectory of the conflict has so perfectly played into not only the regime's narrative, but its strategy. So I think that the calculation now politically within the West, and of course discursively, is that for me this is what it looks like. It's a choice between Hitler and Stalin. This is, you know, World War II all over again, and it's the choice between the devil with the big D and the devil with the small D. And they know which devil that they would prefer. They know which devil they want. And so you see this slow, I think, attempt to kind of recapture Assad, if you will, as a potential partner. It's very gradual. It's very slow. But I think that this has been driven by the Russians. I think that the Russians have been peddling this narrative for a while and in the aftermath of Paris and also in the context of this kind of Western ineptitude and inability to affect anything that's going on in the conflict, they've slowly started to buy this narrative. This narrative comes at the expense of many things. It comes at the expense of a reality that there are different armed groups inside of Syria that need to be dealt with and that they're strong enough that dealing with them is not simply a military issue. And the, the other reality that we've been speaking about today, which is the reality of the presence of Another social project, other projects for a new Syria that reject the armed groups, that reject the regime. And I think that framing the conflict as one between the regime or Daesh is very frightening because it makes possible all sorts of military interventions, all sorts of political language and political framings and, and understandings of the conflict that, it, for me, just simply ignore the realities and only serve the interests of the regime and the preservation of the regime. After almost five years under these circumstances with this awful humanitarian crisis that we're witnessing and that we're facing in Syria, the only chance of any kind of survival the regime has is if everybody in the international community decides to re-legitimize it. And unfortunately, I think that that's certainly happening within the West. Samir, in your book, Syria, you ask this question, can the Syrian conflict be resolved? And then you add, any solution should address four main problems, the fragmentation of the country, the social and humanitarian crisis, which is 
devastating to the country, the lack of political inclusion and the need for a political transition process. One of the problems in the Syrian case is that we keep looking towards a particular process. We keep looking towards the kind of mechanisms of a solution. When I sat down to write that chapter and to think about that chapter, I realized that it was more important to address certain principles or certain ideas. I think that we can't deny that the, the country has become territorially fragmented in very different ways. So for me, there's a question of how does that territorial fragmentation, how does the emergence of competing and different and overlapping governance projects, whether it's in the Kurdish areas or in the south or in the northwest, what does the presence of those competing projects mean for the future of the country? Does it mean that the state gets divided up? I'm not willing it by saying that, but that's what many people have advocated for, what many people believe is the final solution. Uh, or does it mean some form of decentralized governance where the governorate um, have more power at the expense of the, the central government? Or does it mean that you have basically have a strong state where you invest resources into the army i.e. the repressive apparatus of the state, and that erases any, any signs of fragmentation. These are questions that will have to be dealt with. What do we do with this under these circumstances? And I think that there are realities that are being created on the ground, especially in the Kurdish areas, that are institutionalizing things like new curriculums in the school, that are institutionalizing new forms of justice. I mean, we know in the Kurdish areas they're using an entirely new justice code. Judges are being trained in these new codes. So how do we, uh, how do we think about, how do you capture those forms of fragmentation into a political solution. In reality, the first thing that I should have mentioned is the social and humanitarian crisis, which is only accelerating, which is only getting worse as time goes on. One of the many saddening things of the conflict is that the violence has accelerated, and we see the humanitarian crisis getting worse and worse, A, because of the violence, and also B, because society's ability to cope under these circumstances is diminishing. People have divested of their resources, there are no jobs, movement is increasingly limited, resources are limited, people have been forced to re resort to awful things in order to to make ends meet in order to survive. I mean, these are survival issues for so many people inside of Syria. You can't talk of a conflict that isn't even five years old at this point, in which half of the country's population has been either killed or displaced and see any <laughs> anybody or any segment of society other than, of course, the elite, the super elite, if you will, they, um, who've been affected by this. And so how how is the any future political authority, how is the international community, how are the regional states going to respond to what is a generational crisis? How are we going to respond to the healthcare crisis? How are we going to respond to the education crisis in Syria? And I think that unfortunately what our experience is in the world in terms of conflicts such as Syria, whether it's in Lebanon or Iraq, you know, in these places, 
all attempts at solving these conflicts focus purely on the political issues at the expense of thinking about the social issues and social crisis. I mean, where are people going to live? Can people return? How will people be repatriated? These are very important questions, and they're generational questions. And I think that those need to be centralized in any discussion of what's happening in Syria. The third issue is addressing, I mean, for me at least, it speaks to one of the main rationales for uprising and political dissatisfaction in the first place, and that's that there wasn't a participatory community in Syria, but politically participatory community. There were no politically autonomous groups. Any that did exist were outside of the country or had to operate underground. And people were in every way that we can possibly imagine outside of the political process. So is there a way in which the future of Syria can include institutions of deliberation where people can come together and deliberate and make decisions. Maybe this is a decentralization issue. But for me, really, it's a citizenship issue. It's an issue of what kind of citizenship will Syrians have, not in the, just the formal sense, but also in the social and political sense. Finally, of course, there has to be, be agreement on what are the, the long-term political goals? What is the end goal? And what is the transition process to reach that goal? Somebody who I deeply respect and admire once said, I've heard him say publicly that he was in favor of a political solution because he didn't want any side to win. There are no good guys here. But the hope is at least that in everyone not winning, in everyone losing, that there will be some sort of transition. And I think that we have to dismiss all these kind of fuddy-duddy and fantastical notions of Syria becoming some sort of democracy overnight or anything like this. No, this is a generational issue right now. This is a generational problem. The crisis is generational and the response has to be generational and the thinking has to be generational. So the thinking can't be, again, in this kind of Daesh regime dichotomy and it can't ignore issues of political inclusion, issues of transition, and issues around alleviating the humanitarian crisis. And specifically, you are critical of the liberal peace approach, where planners argue for the establishment of strong state institutions. You actually argue that in case of Syria, the decentralization of authority should be institutionalized and in mm. integrated into any post-conflict order. Yeah. The basic model of conflict resolution that the international community kind of propagates and puts forth in every context is one that is based on the idea that people are fighting because they want access to political resources. That's the basic premise. And so in this liberal peace model, what the idea is to do is to bring together the warlords, to bring together the people who have guns, and to say to them, look, let's have a transition, let's have a government, let's have a parliament, and we will assure you that you get these ministries and you get these seats and that you are included. And the assumption is that if those elites, if those conflict elites are integrated into political institutions, then violence will be disincentivized. And then for those who don't accept inclusion in the political process, they become criminals and the state acts upon them. We saw this in the Bosnian case, where you had some warlords who became ministers and some who were thrown in prison. I mean, there's no difference between these people. The difference being that one of them 
decided that they would buy into the peace process and the other decided that they wouldn't. And that approach to Syria is very problematic. <laughs> First of all, it assumes that that's what the motivations are. Second, it is also premised on reinscribing the state with full violent authority and full decision-making authority. And I think that all we have to do is look at Iraq. This is precisely what American planners tried to do, is kind of create this strong state. And it just wasn't possible in the specific Iraqi context. And that's not to rely on any culturalist arguments or anything silly like that, except to say that the idea that conflict can be solved through the inclusion of a few elites into the political process ignores every other reason why conflict occurs. And I think that in the Syrian case where we have seen politics happening has been on the kind of local or regional level where you have had people who have come together and organized schools and organized garbage pickup, have tried to organize service provision. And I think that any post-conflict agreement that devolves power, both budgetary and decision-making, into Syria's governorates, I think that that is a much better place to at least start from. It doesn't have to end like but at least start from that instead of doing the opposite, which is to make the, the regions weak and to make the state strong by giving these warlords, essentially rewarding them for violence by putting them into parliaments and putting them into the state. That's essentially what the liberal peace model does, is that it rewards violence. So it's just a kind of different way of thinking about how to approach the distribution of political power. Samer Abboud is an associate professor of history and international studies at Arcadia University. He's the author of a brand new book titled Syria. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.